It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So guys, what was greater, the number of hours you slept or the ounces of alcohol you imbibed last night? You know, honestly, I I feel like I slept a reasonable amount. I went to bed late, but then I woke up late, so I'm okay. I'm good. I uh, I think my hours of sleep only narrowly edge out my alcohol consumption <laughs> because Ten when hours. I went to bed very late, my children were not interested in letting me sleep in this morning. Oh. I actually didn't drink that much last night. Boo. I didn't eat either. I (laughs) was just kind of a bundle of nerves and I kind of leaned into it. But the thing is, I think the number of ounces of alcohol still exceeds the hours of sleep. (laughs) But that is more a reflection of the very small number of hours of sleep than of a particularly large quantity of alcohol. How about you, Shane? Um, I only slept for five hours, but then I got up and kept drinking. So <laughs> to even things out. <laughs> That's, That's great. Vodka with your Cheerios, Shane. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the still counting edition. I'm Shane Harris. Not counting hours or counting ounces. We're counting votes. Counting votes, you guys. Counting our chickens. Yeah, counting chickens. Well, let's not count the chickens just yet. But um, it looks One, like Joe Biden has some chickens. Two, three. Ben, ben is counting very two, carefully. 270? Count every chicken. <laughs> exactly. 270 <laughs> chickens. One chicken. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I am here in the Jungle Studio remotely, virtually, with my good friends Ben Wittesmarco from Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey, Shane. We made it through day one of the election. Uh, listeners, we are recording this at 2.35 uh, p.m., and as they sometimes say, things may have changed by the time you hear this. Where things stand right now, just to, to, to bring everyone up to speed, is uh, I think by my count, Joe Biden has 237 electoral votes. Wisconsin was just officially called for him. Count's still going on in, let's see, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia. Those are kind of the biggies. But it looks like Biden has a fairly clear path to 270 if he uh, wins Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, which I think we can say he's probably expected to. Uh, And it looks like there's fewer uh, paths to 270 for Trump. So this one looks like it's going to be close. Uh, We won't assume anything, but part of what will inform, I think, our discussions today is uh, I guess our collective uh, assessment, unless anyone wants to contradict me, that Joe Biden probably will be the president-elect in the next couple of days. Anybody else want to say nay? 
No, I'd go even stronger than sort of probably. Um, I think while we're unlikely to get in the range of uh, sort of networks calling it until uh, tomorrow, mostly because Nevada will not be right. in quite yet. And we expect Pennsylvania to take a few days. So even if Michigan's called today, that the math doesn't quite add up. The trajectory is pretty clear. And so barring something really, really crazy, like all the remaining votes in Arizona going to Trump. I, I, I think that it is a uh, sort of overwhelmingly likely at this point that Biden does in fact win. Right, right. And the Trump campaign has said they want uh, a recount in Wisconsin where Biden is uh, won by 20 some thousand votes and that they plan to file a challenge in Michigan. If I had to put money down, I would agree with Susan, but I just want to emphasize that the process that is still playing out in terms of counting actual votes could well go through Friday. Automatic recounts will kick in in places where the margin is small, and that's quite likely in more than one state. So, you know, and then there are the places where a candidate can request and or pay for a recount. So I, you know, in terms of certified results, it may yet be even a couple of weeks. I think that it's it makes sense for the Biden campaign to project the confidence that it is projecting. But I don't think this campaign is over until it's over. Wait on you two. You're both right. (laughs) It is not over till it's over. And it's overwhelmingly likely to end in the direction that Susan says. I love it when we have consensus. All right. With all of that as preamble, let's get down to the show this week. President Trump falsely declares victory in a White House speech and asserts that the election was fraudulent. What havoc could he raise as states continue to count ballots uh, and beyond, frankly? Uh, Some of the most dreaded threats of foreign interference didn't materialize this election season, but other dangers may lie ahead. And Trump may de- be defeated, but Trumpism may be alive and kicking. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, so let's get right into it with Trump's speech last night. Just to recap, I guess this was, gosh, probably around three o'clock in the morning or so uh, from a, an event in the White House. I think a few hundred supporters were there. Millions of votes had yet to be counted, but the president came out and asserted that there was election fraud uh, and it said that he won. And uh, I mean, essentially coming out and saying that, uh, you know, don't believe your eyes, don't believe the counts. We won this thing. We've already won it. Pretty strongly repudiated by, uh, you know, everybody on the, the Biden side, but also notably by some Republicans. I think Adam Kinzinger actually just tweeted at him, stop. Uh, you know, John Bolton came out and said he thought it was one of the most I forget what adjective he used, but uh, some superlative of despicable uh, act by a sitting president. Ben, start us off here. I mean, Trump has long been the disinformer in chief. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about the ways that he could sow mischief or havoc in this period that we're now in between the election day and the inauguration. He may have started doing it last night right at the White House. So what are you concerned about after hearing his remarks last night? Yeah. So I guess the first thing I would say on that is for a number of months, I have been talking about the way certain automaticity kicks in after, you know, people cast their votes and that it becomes uh, much harder than people who are alarmed by Trump's behavior seem to believe a lot of the time, understandably, to 
you know, not accept the results of an election in any practical sense. And we're kind of seeing that in action right now, which is, you know, a whole lot of state officials and county canvassing boards and local election administration officials are busy counting votes. And there is absolutely nothing the president of the United States can do about it. And similarly, uh, while he has just tried to walk into court in Michigan to stop vote counting, he is not going to succeed at stopping vote counting in Michigan. And there is going to be a, you know, these series of things are going to happen. Networks are going to call states against him. And then the initial unofficial results will be released by secretaries of states. And these things trigger these kinds of automatic processes uh, that is actually very, very hard for the president to do anything about. Now, as you rightly point out, what he can do is whine and moan and lie and complain in an effort to delegitimize or cast doubt upon the outcome. And in doing that, he will very likely be amplified by a, a whole lot of other, pardon me, vicious assholes, foreign and domestic. You know, all of that may well have a cumulative impact on the perception of the election in a certain segment of the population. But as we're seeing, it is pretty hard even for the president of the United States to prevent people from voting against him. And that is actually something that's pretty cool. Now, what am I worried about over the next few months? I am really, really worried about a continued abuse of the powers of the presidency untethered by any fear of electoral retribution. And this is an incredibly spiteful person and you know the, the powers of the office of the presidency don't diminish just because you are on your way out the door. You have all of the powers of the office until noon on January 20th of next year when you have none of them. And it's a binary thing. And as we have learned from watching the Trump administration from the beginning, those powers are awesome. They are terrifying when wielded by a person of no good faith. And I think we should all be on our guard for how he is going to use them over the next 78 days. I am less worried about his ability to stop what he clearly regards as an, what he understands as an electoral defeat and wants to cast as something else. Uh, Tammy. I, you know, I, I hear what Ben is saying, and I think when all is said and done, the counting is going to end up creating a Biden victory. I also think that the claims that the Trump campaign seems to be setting up for its litigation in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania are claims that don't have much legal merit and probably won't, you know, unlike Bush v. Gore, will probably not you know, result in litigation that goes up to the Supreme Court and, you know, takes us into the middle of December. But I do think that there is going to be a degree of delaying the inevitable. And I think that that was part of the Trump strategy all along. Delaying the inevitable, even if that's what they consciously know that they are doing, is important for them for a couple of reasons. Well, for several reasons. Number one, because to the extent that Republicans can create the sense that this is such a close election, even though the Electoral College count 
may in the end, and the popular vote count already is, you know, be clearly in Biden's favor, it will make it feel like a very close election. It's certainly already closer than some Democrats expected. And so that denies Biden the sort of clear mandate that would give him more political capital in pushing forward with his own agenda. Number two, it is a way of trying to keep the Republican Party all on on side, you know, standing on the same ground, whereas otherwise this electoral loss would lead to the beginning of um, bickering amongst them about whose fault it is, who, who won, who lost, and what happens next with the GOP. In other words, the beginning of the 2022 and 2024 campaigns. Um, so it delays that reckoning and it keeps Republicans unified in trying to constrain Democrats. And the third thing, and here's where we get to sort of the process stuff and the dangers that Ben was talking about, is that it will give the president and his administration an excuse not to cooperate with a Biden transition team and to try and constrain uh, civil servants at federal agencies from cooperating with a Biden transition. That will handicap a Biden transition. And it will give the Trump folks more time to destroy evidence of whatever corruption and other crimes a Biden transition team might otherwise find when they got in uh, with their landing teams into the federal agencies. That, I think, is perhaps the more lasting concern, because as we've discussed before on this show, there's a lot of national security stuff that can happen during a transition and if we're in a case where the outcome is clear, but it hasn't happened yet, in a way, that's kind of the best situation for America's adversaries. They can calculate knowing who's going to be president, but also knowing that they have a window of effective impunity because the Trump administration is going to be totally internally focused. And so I, I do worry about the transition period in this scenario as one in which we're more likely to see those kinds of threats and actions from adversaries that challenge the United States. Yeah, I by and large agree, you know, really with with all of the points both Ben and Tammy made. I, I, I would say there's a few, um, I, I think, sort of lessons that we learned from last night, which is that, of course, everybody had suspected that this moment might come. Um, you know, Donald Trump had sort of pretty clearly telegraphed that he intended to sort of falsely claim victory. Um, and the media was ready for it. And by and large, they handled it pretty well. Um, and I think one of the most significant um, sort of indications last night is that uh, Fox News uh, is playing a very traditional role here. Um, we saw actually sort of the eruption, uh, particularly in Fox News's decision to call Arizona for Joe Biden, between sort of the Fox News opinion side versus the Fox News decision desk. And we saw the decision desk and sort of traditional journalism, traditional sort of uh, processes around calling elections prevail. And I think that's really important because of the point that Tammy was making about Trump using even ultimately hopeless legal process just as, and as an effort to kind of run the clock and really, really drag this out. Um, it's really difficult to imagine Donald Trump under any circumstances conceding, like actually saying, I lost the election and picking up the phone and calling Joe Biden um, and sort of starting that process. Um, and so instead, there's going to be, you know, something else is going to be the trigger for that. And, and 
I sort of suspect that Fox News calling the election for Joe Biden um, might actually be sort of that trigger that begins the process of sort of, you know, even before the technical and official results are certified, kind of sets in motion, uh, you know, the various mechanisms of the transition, um, you know, kind of while Trump is a, is maybe like a petulant toddler, you know, off in the corner. Um, you know, there's another thing that I think is really significant about the nature of the claims Trump made last night and is making this morning. Um, so one thing I was really concerned about was that Donald Trump might use the position of his office um, in order to make claims about electoral illegitimacy that were very difficult to refute. Um, so if he was claiming foreign interference, if he was claiming, um, you know, serious tampering or interference with uh, with electoral infrastructure, right, the, the kinds of things that we usually look to the intelligence community for, um, those are the types of fabricated claims that could be, it just could lead to like a real mess. Um, and instead, the nature of Trump's sort of unsurprising, you know, kind of petulant claims are really just, they cheated, you know, ballot box stuffing and kind of the traditional stuff that the public has access to primary source information. Journalists are really familiar with the process of how to go about evaluating and ultimately debunking such claims. Um, and ultimately, sort of control over the relevant information in question lies with states and with state secretaries of states in, in particular. Um, and so I, I think that was all, you know, while I, I agree for the first time ever, maybe with John Bolton, that um, that was certainly the low point of Donald Trump's very, very low presidency. Um, I, I actually think it represents kind of a bullet dodged and, and maybe a sign that um, while things are certainly going to be weird from here on out, when, when we're sort of judging normality as the standard of every other prior presidential transition, um, that, that actually they, um, the sort of the concerns about things really, really spinning off the rails or, or Donald Trump really, really creating mischief around electoral legitimacy. Um, I'm certainly less concerned about that now than I was yesterday. Let me throw one factor into the, the mix, and it's kind of a jump ball if anybody wants to respond to it. But I, I had presumed that if there was a route in the Senate and the Democrats had taken it back, even by one, or you know, it didn't necessarily have to be by by many, but if they had netted out such that the Democrats were going to control the Senate, that Republicans remaining in the Senate would be very reluctant uh, at that point to 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 sign off on any of the shenanigans that Donald Trump might try to pull in this interregnum period. It's looking like the Republicans might retain control of the Senate. And the, you know, kind of um, way that that underscores it, and we'll get to this later in the podcast, that this was not necessarily the repudiation of Trump uh, that maybe some had hoped to see, make it more likely that Republicans might enable him or not try to forcefully stop him from doing anything malicious uh, between now and January 20th. Uh, ben? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think the mercurial nature of his personality, as well as his, uh, you know, sense of peak and anger and spite and the sort of narcissistic incomprehension that he actually could have lost, I think are the overwhelmingly dominant features in what is likely to be his reaction. You know, you're already seeing that on Twitter, the, these tweets that serially Twitter is uh, considering misinformation and is, you know, blocking access to. Uh, and so I don't really know what the, you know, Republican restraint on him is likely to be, honestly. 
So I'm going to posit a, a something a little different, I think. I mean, I said earlier that I think one goal of a Trump campaign litigation strategy is to try and keep Republicans on side. And, you know, as Ben noted, there are a few serious Republicans like Adam Kinzinger who have already come out to kind of quash the speculation that Trump could somehow win this after all. Uh, to me, you know, if again, if the scenario is one in which Biden's victory is uh, basically an inevitability and just a question of playing out the process, you're going to have the Trump campaign and McConnell trying to keep them on side and the Biden folks, you know, quietly going behind the scenes to more independent members, whether it's Kinzinger or Liz Cheney in the House or, you know, Mitt Romney and Ben Sass in the Senate and saying, look, this is Joe Biden. He's not going to be out to get you. He wants to get things done with Congress. He knows he hasn't won the Senate. You know, let's just keep this grenade from exploding for a few months, and then we can get some stuff done together. And those folks are going to have to make their individual choices. And, you know, that I think is part of the weighing that they're already doing anyway about whether Trumpism has irrevocably taken over the GOP or whether there is room for them to try and take it back. But I hope that the Biden folks will be an active part of that conversation. All right, let's talk about threats that we thought we might see uh, in the run-up to the election that didn't quite materialize. Susan, you know, we again, we've talked so many times in the podcast about <clears throat> what national security officials and experts had warned was likely going to be a Russian interference that repeated the things that they had done in 2016 and that other countries might get in on the act as well. Um, there were some instances of interference. I mean, notably, we've talked about the Russians uh, laundering disinformation and, and malign information about Hunter Biden via Rudy Giuliani through a former Ukrainian lawmaker. But we didn't really see the kind of robust hack and leak of emails or uh, you know the use of a third party like WikiLeaks as we did in 2016. So tell us what you're hearing and thinking about why Russia and, and other countries for that matter seemed not to play as big a role this time. Yeah, so I, I don't know that we are able, one, on a couple of scores to say we're fully out of the woods, although certainly um, things have gone far better than anyone had a right to expect they might, um, you know, even relatively recently. Um, so there is a little bit of a danger that still remains. And um, that said, there's a really, really long list of things that people were um, reasonably and legitimately concerned about. And basically, none of those materialized. And I think that's kind of the, from a national security standpoint, um, you know, right, the dog that didn't bark. It's it's going to be the, the story that the national security community tries to pick apart and understand um, for the lessons moving forward for a long time. Um, so as you noted, there was no uh, major sort of hack and dump operation. Um, that's really surprising because that was, whenever you look at the evidence, probably the single most influential and significant thing that happened in 2016. Um, and so not just the fact that, uh, that Russia didn't try it again, but that nobody else really tried to get in 
on that action. There's lots of explanations for that, right? Was it increased campaign cybersecurity? Is it that there was no WikiLeaks to sort of play that um, dissemination intermediary? Is it that Cyber Command sort of uh, had an active defense posture and CISA was really on top of things? Is that there was effective deterrence or the incentives are different? There's a, there's a lot there, but I think the important thing is that it didn't happen. And if it, if it was going to happen, it would have happened before Election Day. Um, there was no serious effort to target voting infrastructure. So uh, CISA has sort of said, you know, yeah, it was just kind of a regular Tuesday on the Internet. Not much to see here. Um, remember, we talked about sort of there being dueling stories between the Wall Street Journal uh, and New York Times about Russia. Um, the Wall Street Journal story, I think, was was pretty clearly right based on what we saw. There, there might have been some opportunistic scanning here and there, but not real efforts to sort of undermine uh, sort of the integrity of the election. Um, and remember, we were never really concerned about Russia or other actors actually changing votes. It was always about sort of doing something to undermine confidence. Um, the list kind of goes on from there. U.S. officials were really concerned about ransomware, uh, you know, sort of being used. That didn't happen. Was it the trick bot stuff or, or that U.S. Cyber Command was involved in, or is it something else? Um, there was no targeting of electric grids or transportation systems, right? There was like this whole long parade of horribles that didn't happen. Um, and there also weren't the kind of glitches, sort of ordinary non-malicious glitches that can feed uh, sort of disinformation and, and create other forms of chaos. The one place that I would put sort of a big question mark for right now is, as you mentioned, there hasn't been much evidence of a large scale, a sort of systematic foreign disinformation campaign like we saw with Russia. Um, that said, we didn't find out about most of the Russian stuff until after the fact. So I don't know that we would necessarily know quite yet. Um, and also, it's pretty clear that there's been a lot of sort of domestic disinformation. Um, the platforms, I think, have done a reasonably good job in preventing that content from going going viral. But if Donald Trump is looking for ways to, you know, pluck a video out of Twitter and and claim voter fraud, like there's ample stuff for him to choose from in the disinformation sort of ecosystem. And so that's something that I think like the next two or three days, we are still kind of in the danger zone um, for that emerging as, as a major sort of important thing of 2020. Uh, Tammy. Yeah, I, I think our danger zone is probably longer than just a few days. I do want to give a shout out to General Nakasone and, and Cybercom in the NSA, because I think that not only have they been proactive, they've been pretty proactive in communicating with the American public as well. I don't know how important it proves to be, but I do think it's helpful in trying to bolster American public confidence in the electoral process and in the outcome. And as Susan noted, like that's been the primary goal of uh, foreign interference is to undermine confidence in, in the process and in our democratic system. And that to me is why we're still very much in a danger zone, both for domestic inter, you know, disinformation, but also for foreign interference, because in a way, this is the perfect scenario there is uncertainty about the outcome. There wasn't a clear outcome last night, and we're going to have a period of you know, counting and litigation and whatever. And the more that goes on, and especially the more Trump sort of tries to rile up the troops, but the more both sides feel they need to keep campaigning, the more people's emotions are going to be stoked and there's going to be tension over the outcome. And uncertainty and outrage are two key ingredients that make audiences susceptible to disinformation. They they create the openings that disinformation um, latches onto like a virus 
And so I think that, you know, we could be, if I were a foreign actor, I would say, I would wake up this morning and be like, wow, let's go. You know, we've probably got maybe three weeks um, or more to uh, get Americans to wonder about how great their system is. So I, I think we are by no means out of the woods. And I would just emphasize to everyone who listens to Rational Security, and please share this with everyone you know, again, uncertainty and outrage are vulnerabilities that make you open to disinformation. Be super careful. If you, you know, are feeling unsure, go to valid official sources or valid like legacy media sources. And if you are feeling outraged and you get something on social that just seems either too good to be true or that really pisses you off, distrust it just because of that emotional reaction and go check it out before you share it. Yay for legacy media. (laughs) Yay. Uh, Ben. Yeah, so I I actually think it is worth uh, thinking about the what went right in the foreign information operations department here in, in a larger context, which is what went right with the election itself. It was only a few months ago that we believed that from an election management point of view and an election administration point of view, uh, this election was going to be extremely difficult to pull off and that we, you know, we were asking uh, we had these primaries in in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in particular that were disasters. We had, uh, and elsewhere, Georgia too. We had, uh, remember, the Iowa caucuses where they couldn't uh, count the votes in a timely fashion with any accuracy. And, you know, between COVID and the president really going out of his way to raise questions about the integrity of the vote, the question of whether we were going to pull this off was a really live one. There was a gross shortage of poll workers. We had questions about, you know, mail-in voting from, you know, whether that was going to be, whether states were going to adopt it. And it is in that context that the possibility of foreign interference, which was already acute and scary from 2016, became particularly worrisome because, you know, you already have confidence issues with respect to voting systems. And now you have, you know, Russian trolls amplifying the president's attempt to delegitimize these. And so I think it's actually worth going back and looking at the actual performance of the U.S. election system in this environment, which was superb. And more people voted in the United States than have ever voted before. That is partly a testament to the will of voters to vote. It is also partly a testament to poll workers and election administrators at the state and local level all over the country who made it possible for people to vote. You know, and to poll workers, I think the number is 50,000 people stepped up to volunteer to be poll workers around the country in response to this shortage. That's awesome. And the litigation that we were all so anxious about served to clarify rules, setting up this automaticity that I was talking about earlier. Uh, And so I just think there's actually 
you know, the, the point that Susan makes, which is that Tuesday was just another day on the internet, uh, and that's a pretty cool thing, actually is a larger point than that. We actually pulled off an election under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and that's a pretty cool thing, too. I also wonder to what extent, and, and, and you know, and I, I, I implicate myself in this, too, you know, whether we all, and particularly journalists, had PTSD after 2016 and the Russian intervention and four years of such a remarkably unconventional president, that we all kind of built up the idea in our mind that this election was just going to be a shit show and a nightmare. And to your point, Ben, like we have a lot of experiences with elections. We know how to do them. This went very smoothly. I wonder, though, and not to just to sort of make it sound like I'm somebody who's like willing the sky to fall, but, you know, to the extent that Donald Trump clearly wants to poison the well and make people think that this was a fraudulent election, you know, we've often kind of rolled our eyes at the idea that he was going to barricade himself inside the Oval Office and, and, and that that would be a foolish enterprise anyway, because the Secret Service would just remove him on January 20th. But do you guys any thought of whether this makes it more likely that he would try to do something just extraordinary and, you know, deviant and just say, I'm not leaving and I refuse to acknowledge Joe Biden as the real president and, and, and try to just create a just a spin up a, a crisis around him because you know there really weren't any others that intervened. I think he's a chaos machine, and while the office of the presidency has certainly been lucrative for him, he has also he and his family and his associates have also spent the last four years preparing for a lucrative post presidency. I think that he will be confident, as he is always supremely confident, in his ability to be a very influential voice, whether he's sitting in the Oval Office or not. Remember that his focus always is on the message. And so even if he feels like he can't dig his, you know, chain himself to the desk, um, his message will not change. His message will be that it was an illegitimate outcome and that he contests it and that he didn't lose. And who knows, maybe he'll even start gearing up to run again. That actually teases up very nicely for our next segment, which is Trumpism. Trumpism, alive and kicking. Trump may have been repudiated at the polls, but maybe not as much as we thought he might be. It's maybe a little early to make this prediction, but I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there for conversation that while Trump is going to be no longer president, as Tammy, as you point out, he is going to be active on the scene. And the ideas that he espoused about nationalism, the America first policy, not only are those ideas that other, you know, potential inheritors to, you know, his role espouse, but I think that they're not only going to be active, but potentially seen as viable if he didn't lose by that much. And if he actually got more vote in 2020 than he did in 2016, which looks like he might. So Tammy, why don't you kind of kick us off with this? Is that going to be an animating force, his idea or Trumpism in the Republican Party going forward? And how does that affect the potential Biden administration's foreign policy and, and its approach to national security? Oh, Shane. I mean, I, I think it's really good to start thinking about this. It's hard to know exactly how it's going to play out, but here are a few initial thoughts. 
The first is that, you know, as much as Democrats were hoping for a wholesale repudiation of Trump, I think it's fair to say that a number of core American allies abroad were desperately hoping for a repudiation of Donald Trump because they want to see a repudiation of America first, because they want to see a repudiation of the sort of mercantilist, selfish, transactional approach to U.S. foreign policy, and because they want a Biden administration to have the mandate to do all kinds of actually quite difficult and complicated international things like negotiate a new nuclear agreement with Iran together with other members of the international community, to rejoin the Paris Accords, to negotiate new trade deals that the Trump administration abandoned. And without the Senate and without a large mandate, those things are going to be hard to do. And so I imagine that European governments, for example, are already scaling down their expectations uh, for what they can ask or hope for from a Biden administration. And frankly, that's good because the world has changed. There is no going back to the status quo ante. The Europeans already know this. And part of what the transatlantic relationship and other major U.S. alliance relationships have to reckon with is that Trump himself was not the first of this populist authoritarian trend. And there are plenty of others that are still going to be playing major roles. You know, the uh, Biden administration, if it ends up in office, is going to have headaches dealing with Hungary, dealing with Turkey, you know, uh, not to mention the resurgence of far right forces in Germany and the imminent retirement of Angela Merkel, you know, the populism in the UK and the and the withdrawal from the EU. You know, and all of that is just on the on the European continent and its margins before you even get to the rest of the world. So, you know, I, I think this is a time if there's a Biden administration in January, this is a time for Europeans and Americans to get together and talk seriously and at length about how they jointly uh, not only as Biden has discussed, you know, rebuild uh, the global democratic coalition, but how they take that democratic coalition and use it in a forward strategy, a forward strategy of freedom, one might as say. As one might say. As, as a former American president might say. No, but a, a forward strategy to push back on populist authoritarianism. It, it is absolutely essential um, because Trump is not the only Trump. The Tom Cotton presidency could be right behind. <laughs> Susan. Yeah, so uh, this is sort of uh, like a narrative that has been emerging really since sort of early last night, this idea that, you know, even like that this is a narrow victory for Biden and somehow that is both devastating for the Democrats and also um, like is is a sign that Trumpism is really, really durable. That might be true. It just seems to me that that's way too early to tell. We are still in a world in which Joe Biden is likely to be elected president. And he's likely to be elected president with Arizona and maybe even Georgia in addition to all the blue wall states. And so I think people are a little bit conflating the kind of white knuckle ride of election night with the degree of what we will ultimately understand to be the repudiation of Trump. Um, and keep in mind as well, millions and millions of people, uh, millions more people voted against uh, uh, Donald Trump than voted for him, whether or not he, uh, he ekes out 
an electoral college victory. Look, I, I think we have to uh, seriously reckon with the idea that after four years of Donald Trump, more of our fellow citizens looked around uh, than in 2016 and said, yeah, we could do four more years of that guy. Um, you know, we, we certainly need to be clear eyed about sort of the, the demographics. Um, that said, I, time will tell whether or not this actually is viewed as a repudiation and a strong repudiation of, of Trump and Trumpism. Um, you know, I, I also think we might be sort of uh, sort of, of subscribing to this idea that um, it just you just need a new and better and like slightly more savvy Trump um, and somebody who's just a little bit more controlled would harness the magic um, and be able to sort of to, to take it to the next level. It's equally possible that Trump is a is a sort of once in a generation type politician and actually the magic of Trump is the erraticness um, and the insanity and the chaos and unpredictability of it all. Um, and so actually somebody else who's more controlled uh, and more manufactured sort of attempting to capitalize on uh, these sort of populist strains will be less successful, not more. Um, so I, I, again, I um, I think that there are never Trump Republicans right now who might be looking and thinking like the outcome here is the, the best they could have possibly hoped for if Trump is voted out of office and they still retain control of the Senate. That said, you have a whole big group of people who need to ask themselves whether or not there is space for them in the Republican Party moving forward um, and where the uh, foreign policy views, national security policy views, uh, executive power views, where do those most appropriately fit and what is sort of the, the, the political realignment going to look like sort of moving forward? And I don't think that's at all clear at this moment. And I just want to concur with your point, too, about Susan, of conflating the stomach churning nature for a lot of people of watching the returns come in and knowing it was going to be a long night with, you know, this idea that, oh, Trump, you know, maybe his ideas are going to stick around. I mean, a win's a win, man. And, and if Joe Biden is the president, as it looks like he might be, he's going to appoint a new secretary of state, a new secretary of defense, a new CIA director, probably a new FBI director because Donald Trump is likely to fire the current one, which I'm not sure he's quite figured out might actually be a favor to his replacement. But, you know, he's he's going to get to remake an entire government here and may be forced in ways that he hadn't planned on of negotiating with Republicans, which could also redound to his benefit. I mean, it seems to me that he's going to the more immediate questions he's going to face is about the fight for the future of the Democratic Party uh, and how that might impact all kinds of policy decisions from climate change that, you know, that necessarily bears on foreign policy and national security. You know, you're already seeing a lot of people, granted it's on Twitter, so it's not real life, but, you know, essentially saying if Bernie had been the nominee, uh, it would have been a blowout and you really would have got the repudiation of Trump that, uh, that we're missing. Ben. Yeah. So first of all, that is very easy to say if you're a Bernie Sanders follower. Correct. Uh, there is... <laughs> Uh, as best as I can tell, zero evidence for that proposition. Look, I want to say I, I agree with Susan that a certain elation is appropriate here and we shouldn't confuse the sort of white knuckle uh, election day feelings that we had with how strong the repudiation actually turns out to be. I also uh, think there's another thing, however, that we shouldn't confuse. And I, I want to say a few words in defense of the despondency that a lot of people are feeling at this outcome, which is we shouldn't confuse 
the fact that if Biden is elected, he will have all the powers of the presidency the moment Trump has none of them. And those include the power to redefine the, the narrative in significant respects. We shouldn't confuse the fact that he gets all of those powers with the degree of repudiation that his election represents. And I, I, I do think the despondency that some people feel that after everything that we've seen, uh, Donald Trump could come this close a second time honestly is legitimate. And, you know, if you think back four years ago at this time, people were uh, debating, was it all Hillary Clinton's fault because she was, you know, not likable enough and she had emails or was it Jim Comey's fault uh, or was it, you know, the fault of the Russians for, you know, intervening uh, we were all looking, was it the social media company's fault? We were all looking for these things that could explain the fact that Trump appealed to so many of our fellow countrymen who suddenly did not believe it, or so it seemed, in things like the rule of law, things like, you know, living in a multiracial democracy, things like, you know, like women and none of those factors are present today, right? Uh, Joe Biden is supposedly the opposite of Hillary Clinton. Everybody likes him, right? He's working class Joe, supposed to appeal to all those what white non-college educated voters. And there was no Jim Comey letter. The Russians, as Susan rightly points out, kind of sat this one out. And the social media companies were more responsible. And assuming that Joe Biden wins, he will win having marginally changed a few states and Trump has largely retained the support that he had back then, which suggests that we may have been underestimating the power of the ideas such as they are that he represents, which is to say a lot of our fellow countrymen and fellow countrywomen seem to believe this bullshit. And, and I think that is something to be really despondent about. All right, before we move on to a special edition of Object Lessons, a reminder that next week we have a live show. Maybe we'll have a president-elect by next week for the live show. Maybe he could come on. We could crown him president-elect and sing, <laughs> sing a song. It's not over till Rational Security says it's over. Have you secured the Rational Security endorsement yet? Yeah, you think, do you think that Biden would be busy next week? <laughs> Uh, but Ben, remind us quickly where folks can go to sign up for that live show. So the live show is part of the Lawfare Live series, which we do on Crowdcast. And the Crowdcast uh, series, the Lawfare Live, is available to people who support Lawfare on Patreon. Uh, and so go to our Patreon page, sign up for Lawfare Live, which is a mere $10 a month or $5 a month if you're a student. The number of students, by the way, who have signed up for Lawfare Live is really heartwarming, students, teachers, and military, active duty military. So sign up for Lawfare Live and come join the conversation, both at this event and lots of other events. 2.30, right? 2.30 on Wednesday. All right. We'll see you there. So for Object Lessons this week, we're going to talk about something a little different. So your favorite ballot initiative, uh, your most surprising moment, perhaps, or your favorite you know, feature or story from election night. Ben, why don't you go first? So over the last four years, I've gotten involved with a bunch of groups that 
put together conferences about what's wrong with American democracy. And at every single one of these conferences, and this has become a joke I'm up between me and Sarah Longwell, the, uh, uh, the great focus group runner, publisher of The Bulwark, and founder of Republican Voters Against Trump. And Sarah and I have this joke that in any gathering of pro-democracy people, the number of political scientists in the room is inversely proportional to the amount of time it will take the subject of ranked choice voting to come up, Um, which is to say, when you walk into such a conference, you look around the room and you just note the number of political scientists and you say, shit, someone's going to start talking about ranked choice voting in a really short time. And it's it's a pretty good rule of thumb. And uh, it has made me, uh, quite apart from the merits of the matter, hate ranked choice voting um, (laughs) and all of its works. Uh, I do renounce them. And so it was a delight to see last night the ranked choice voting initiative in Massachusetts go down. God bless America. First past the post forever. Um, And no, no, I don't believe any of that. Oh my gosh. Uh Tammy. Okay. I there were a lot of um cringeworthy moments last night and this morning, but I'm gonna focus on something that I think is just wonderful and positive, which is that the next Congress will have a record number of LGBTQ members. There will be two openly queer people in the Senate and nine in the House including two black men, gay black men. I think that this has been, you know, a set of ceilings broken, barriers broken for queer Americans over the last decade or so. And, uh, you know, to see transgender Americans win at the state level and now all these queer folks in the Congress is something that gives me hope. It's a good one. And, you know, and it's also another reason to uh, occasion to remind people, and we don't talk about it very much. If Joe Biden is the president elect, we are going to have the first woman vice president. And the first don't woman forget. of color vice president. <laughs> uh, Susan. So my favorite moment is probably a little petty, but I'm tired and it's been <laughs> a long it. night and it's been a long four years. So is it going to be pettier than mine? My object <laughs> pretty petty. is a huge congratulations to Martha McSally for becoming, oh, yeah. I believe, the first person to lose not one, but both of the Senate seats of your state to the opposite party in two consecutive years. But Susan, isn't it better than that? Because she lost the House seat too, because she gave up her House seat to take the Senate appointment. So she has actually occupied in one cycle three congressional seats from the same state and now has none of them. Look, all I'm saying is that if Martha McSally wants to run for Arizona governor in 2022, we should welcome that. Um, What a historic achievement. Go for the full sweep. Um, Just, you did it. Amazing. You go, girl. Women can do anything. She's like some sort of real life, like, but not as uh, hilarious uh, a version of Selena Meyer. She is 
just awful. <laughs> but you know um, what I mean? It's just like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's never quite winning it. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my favorite moment, actually, it's, it's more of a fa- favorite moment. I am just sort of in awe of the people who can stand in front of those giant iPads and tap their way through all of the districts oh, and the races. Yeah. But particularly my favorite is Steve Kornacki, who, I mean, I think somebody has like hooked him up to a generator or something, or or he has some like really, really good amphetamines uh, because he is just on fire. And the level of detail and knowledge all of these people possess is kind of astonishing, but his is just like especially granular uh, yeah, in the way that- it's an encyclopedia. It's kind of amazing, right? I mean, I found myself actually thinking as I'm watching it, like, if it's just watching Steve Kornacki at the big board, like, I'm fine. Like, that's totally fine. Uh, I could get through the night with that. And it is just, it's just kind of astonishing how um, he has assimilated all of that information uh, into their heads, uh, his head. So he's my favorite, but but props to all of them. And uh, and actually, like, the big boards, finally, they don't seem super lame. Remember when they were, like, like just, like, big, dumb iPads and, like, you know, they didn't respond well to the taps and, like, nothing. The magic wall. <laughs> oh, my God. It was, uh, yeah. Ben, did you want to say something about Kornacki? Yeah, I just, uh, so for those people, I don't actually know Steve Kornacki at all, but um, uh, despite the fact that we both work with, for MSNBC sometimes, but uh, for those who know him only from his big board work, which is, I agree, awesome and in a different league from everybody else, just in for all the reasons that Shane just said, he is also an extremely fine writer and political, sort of writer of of history of uh, American politics. He wrote a, a really wonderful book about uh, Newt Gingrich as the sort of OG Donald Trump and his uh, sort of work in Congress in the late 70s and early 80s that is really worth people's time. Cool. Check it out. We've made it to the end, you guys, of the podcast. Not quite the end of the election, uh, but I think by the time we talk again next week, there may be some more clarity. Or not. Who knows? We'll find out together live. But until then, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy Rational Security giant iPads, right? So you too can play along the election game at home. Or a doubles glass if you still need one. <laughs> that's that, that's more like it, isn't it? That's exactly. You can find that at Ben. Where can they buy that? Lost or lost or glasses fair. That's correct. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review and share the podcast with someone else, uh, maybe before the live show. Even That would be great. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Donald Trump. He's actually announced his post-presidential plans. He's going to have an 80s synth pop cover band called The Final Countdown. Oh! <laughs> Good, right? It's going to do yeah, it it'll suck just like the original. They're going to tour where there's no extradition treaties. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia Yan may be available for a very hefty fee. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you guys next week. Get some sleep. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.